0: Welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero-knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, I chat with Stefan George from Gnosis. He walks us through what the Gnosis team has been building over the last two years, and we cover some of the projects that have since spun out of the organization. We then chat about the evolution of the Gnosis chain, the work they're doing to make bridging more secure. And finally, we talk about Gnosis Pay, their new product focused on the original blockchain use case, that of payments. Through our conversation, we get a chance to cover a number of relevant themes, such as intents, account abstraction, ZK bridges, decentralization, and we make a few predictions about what the larger Ethereum ecosystem might look like in the future. Now, before we kick off, I just want to let you know that the application to attend ZK10 is now open. This event happens in London on September 20th. As always, we aim to bring together the top researchers and engineers working in ZK to share their latest research and new findings. Check the show notes for the application form, and please note, spots are limited, and only folks who applied will be offered a chance to buy a ticket. So do get your applications in soon, and
1: yeah, hope to see you there. Now Tanya will share a little bit about this week's sponsors. Polygon Labs is thrilled to announce Polygon 2.0, the value layer for the internet. Polygon 2.0 makes mass adoption possible by offering users and developers unlimited scalability and unified liquidity. This mission is fueled by groundbreaking ZK innovations, including a first-of-its-kind ZK-powered interoperability protocol, and the next generation of the industry-leading and widely adopted plonky 2 Proving System. Polygon 2.0 will change the way we experience Web3 by bringing the security and decentralization of Ethereum to the scale and usability of the internet itself. Polygon 2.0 and all of their ZK tech is open-source and community-driven reach out to the Polygon community on Discord at discord.gg forward slash 0xPolygon to learn more, contribute, or to join in on building the future of Web3 together with Polygon. Alio is a new layer one blockchain that achieves the programmability of Ethereum, the privacy of Zcash, and the scalability of a rollup. If you're interested in building private applications, then check out Alio's programming language called Leo. Leo enables non-cryptographers to harness the power of ZKPs to deploy decentralized exchanges, hidden information games, regulated stablecoins, identity products, and more. Alio's incentivized testnet is now live. Participate as a developer, apply for a grant, or go for a bug bounty. Check out alio.org forward slash blog for more info. That's alio.org forward slash blog. You can also find the link in our show notes. So thanks again, Alio. And now here's our episode. So
0: today I'm here with Stefan, who's one of the three co-founders of Gnosis. Welcome to the show, Stefan.
2: Thanks for having me, Anna.
0: So I've already had your other co-founders on the show over the years, but I'm very excited to get a chance to chat with you. Just to give folks a sense, though, like the first time I spoke to one of your co-founders, it was with Frederica, and we were talking about the original idea for Gnosis, That is like a prediction market. I then chatted with Martin about CowSwap and the DAO work you were doing. I had a chat with the Zodiac project, which I think spun out from Gnosis.
2: Not yet, but uh, about to. (laughs) Okay.
0: And I also had a chance to chat with Martin again uh, last year, just after the fall. Like We talked about the fallout of Tornado. So with members of your team, I feel like we've covered a lot of ground, yeah. but today, I mean, what I'm hoping to do is do obviously a recap since the last time we checked in on Gnosis, but also find out, you know, what are the different building blocks? What's spun out? What's still inside? What are you guys working on? The thing is about Gnosis is that I feel like you've consistently and kind of quietly over the years shipped some pretty interesting, pretty important pieces of software I think there's a lot of people who are interfacing with Gnosis software, but they they might not know that. Yeah, and this has mostly been in the Ethereum community.
2: Right, yes. Yeah, I know. Thanks thanks for the intro. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think for Gnosis, uh, the interesting story is that we continuously pivoted or we did just many different things in parallel. And I think the reason for this is that we have many different interests. (laughs) Ah. At the same time, um, I think we... We are, first of all, entrepreneurs, so we identify problems and we try to find solutions for it. And you can imagine at the beginning of Ethereum, which was also the beginning of Gnosis in some way, there were lots of problems or there were only problems to be solved. (laughs) And so we picked up a few of them that were for us uh, interesting and that we also found instrumental to actually accomplish the core mission of Gnosis, which Mm -hmm. was at the beginning prediction markets. So for prediction markets to work, you have to have wallet infrastructure. That's why I started the SAFE project within Gnosis. And then of course you need exchanges in order to trade prediction markets. So we started very early on researching and building decentralized exchange infrastructure for Ethereum. And so it was just not necessary to build those in order to actually accomplish what we actually want to do at the time, which was prediction markets. It turned out that Less people actually care about prediction markets. Uh, People like to theorize about them, Mm. (laughs) Ethereum, like to theorize a lot. But then when it's actually (laughs) finally about to launch, then uh, actually very few people cared about it and there are many reasons for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Fortunately, however, everything else that we built in order to make prediction markets work, worked actually much better than prediction markets.
0: So it's almost like the tooling you built to get to your goal became your business.
2: Exactly. That's exactly what happened. And eventually those kind of side projects became the main projects. And at some point they became so big that it became obvious they would be better off uh, growing faster and being more successful by not being part of the core organization anymore, but being independent, um, creating their own identity and grow as they think it would be best.
0: That helps us to understand a little bit why you know, even in this early intro, this idea of spinning things out. So I have a sort of a starting question, which is, do you now consider Gnosis to be a bit of a like company builder or almost like a studio? Because you have these ideas, you build the product, you build up a team, and then you spin them out. And I know this isn't like the way you started off, but do you right. feel like you could kind of call what you do now? something I like think that?
2: that's basically it. You're right. And I would say it's still like some kind of core fundamental layer that can eventually connect all the pieces, which I think is also important. And that is Gnosis Chain. So Gnosis Chain is its own network mm-hmm. uh, that came into existence. Uh, actually, the original version of Gnosis Chain was XDAI. That started yes. in 2018, but eventually it merged with Gnosis. So I feel like that's kind of a fundamental layer that can connect all the dots of what has been built as infrastructure components on top of EVM blockchains. And mm-hmm. so ultimately, I think all the components that were built and eventually spun off, like Safe and CowSwap, and now potentially Zodiac, uh, they all have a role to play in, in this like larger vision of Gnosis Chain. Um, that being said, we continue to innovate and have new ideas and form new teams that eventually also become spin-offs. So I think in some sense, you're definitely right. Like We are kind of a venture builder, effectively a venture builder without yeah, yeah. even ever had like having the exact purpose for becoming a venture builder. <laughs> Some people like the we, we originally started in Consensus, which yeah. obviously
0: was a venture builder. Was a
2: venture builder. Yeah. And now many people refer to us as actually being more of what Consensus wanted to be. <laughs> um, wow. So I I think it's just kind of in our nature of being entrepreneurs, uh, having many interests mm. and uh yeah mm. trying to align many people with this vision and then eventually those become too big for us to to continuously drive all of them forward, and we find the right people that can take on ownership and mm-hmm. become founders of those. I think that's the extremely important part that many people completely underestimate. Of course, you can always easily say, like, okay, this becomes now a spin off, but you need people that can actually drive this, right? Sure. Like, you need founder type people, like we fortunately had in Gnosis and are having in Gnosis that are able to really drive things forward, that form their own vision, that are able to uh, yeah, hire great other people to work with them. Mm. And uh, if you don't have this, then well, there's no spin-off.
0: <laughs> I wonder, can you share with me some of the projects that you did start that didn't go anywhere? Because I feel like there's, there's no a, way it's only home runs. we talked about a, some like big it's ones. A, <laughs> it's
2: a very big graveyard. Uh, <laughs> usually we clutter over this, uh, but uh, no, I'm happy I'm to talk about it. Can, I, this can many, I ask you about yeah. one of them? And yes. maybe it
0: wasn't a graveyard yeah. one, but I do remember many, many years ago uh, we were talking about like auctions. Yes,
2: you were talking about the Dutch Exchange.
0: Dutch Exchange. Did that? Was that a graveyard project? Yes. Okay.
2: That I can fairly <laughs> confidently say also. <laughs> graveyard project, mm. uh, and I think it was probably if you compare the like time we invested into it to where it is now, like the biggest investment of resources from our side with a little with the smallest like output or success. It was that um, one. It was still instrumental for swap So oh. in some sense, you can see many things as being continuation of other previous projects because it's the same team working on those. They have the same, like they gained experience through those failures, obviously, yeah, yeah. and ultimately led to actually better products. And I think also what we saw is like we hired a lot of people, which were great engineers, but they were new to blockchain. And so they mostly relied on us giving guidance and making design decisions. And I think over time, of course, they became more and more senior, so they could really much better argue with us, mm-hmm. <laughs> which ultimately led also to better products. And I think for the Dutch exchange specifically, um, the yeah, there were many, I would say, user experience problems why it never really took off. And uh, it was also an ownership problem. So as part of, of Dutch Exchange, actually, we also formed DXDAO, if you remember the this DAO. DAO. So mm. DXDAO. Oh,
0: DXDAO.
2: DX, like that's why okay. right, Dutch Exchange, DAO. Got it, got it, got it. And uh, so the, the problem that we foresaw with decentralized exchange is not only writing the smart contract and writing a nice UI. But you also need someone to host this UI and be responsible for the operations of this exchange. right? Mm. And we didn't have any license for this. So together with uh, launching the exchange, we also launched a DAO. Okay. And we had one of the first uh, liquidity mining programs, actually, that gave those people ownership in this DAO. Wow. And uh, this is how DAO was formed. So it's a very interesting experiment. You can think about this like you are uh, in a room that's dark. Like this room without light, you switch on the light, and then you see all the other people in this room, and those are your co-founders.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's
2: kind of how the DAO came into existence. So suddenly there was a DAO. There were people with ownership, huh. but no one knew each other until the point where the liquidity mining program was actually done, and, uh, and you could really form teams. Well, unfortunately, this, uh, as with every DAO, they struggle in getting started, mm. and so they were not a- really able to drive the exchange to. Being successful. So Uniswap was way more successful, obviously. But DX itself had interesting activities. So they they really started forming an organization and most importantly, they were even able to coordinate a token sale. Okay. And for
0: themselves or for someone?
2: Well, for the DAO itself. So okay. They capitalized the DAO uh, with a significant significant amount of ether, I think mm. something like twenty thousand ether. Oh. And uh, yeah, they gave ownership um, yeah, in DXD tokens. And uh, yeah, it was very interesting to see for a couple of years. Unfortunately, now it ceased to exist because ultimately they were not able to drive this organization to be successful in terms of developing interesting, successful products. Ah, okay. So actually just a couple of months ago, there was a redemption process where uh, DXD token holders uh, could redeem their tokens for Ether. And uh, yeah, in some sense, I would say DXDAO has failed and uh, is now also <laughs> ceased to exist. Okay, But it's definitely one of the most interesting uh, experiments that we did. Um, did this
0: lead at all to the Zodiac stuff? Like, uh, you all so of sudden? in some sense,
2: you can say yes, because some people from the Zodiac team obviously worked on the DAO-related tooling that was used for DXDAO mm-hmm. to come into existence. and But more importantly, the CowSwap team Worked previously ah. on Dutch Exchange. And then a lot of the learnings about how the auctions were run and also, especially on the user experience side, led to the creation of Cowswap, okay. which then obviously became successful enough to actually become a spin off.
0: Cowswaps, it sounds like there's a lot of pieces that sort of like you needed the exchange for the prediction market. That yeah. was sort of one driver. The other one is you had created this Dutch. Exchange, but it wasn't really the project that people stuck to. So did they switch to CowSwap or did they really like graduate to it?
2: Uh so it was more like a switch, I would say, okay. or like if they use Dutch Exchange at all. So mm-hmm. the, the problem with Dutch Exchange was so the way our Dutch auction works, you start at a very high price, and then the price goes down over time until a time when everyone's bidding and uh, the auction is finally closed. So from a user experience point of view, it's kind of annoying. If I just want to buy a token, I don't want to wait like six hours or so to finally have the the price point at the mark where I want to invest into. Mm-hmm. So that was just not really great. And uh, for us, it was mostly a mechanism to find a fair price, but there are better mechanisms. <laughs> okay. Uh, but did CowSwap
0: use that? Does Kow, Like under the hood, does CowSwap mm, have that?
2: So no, CowSwap is using different type of auction under the hood. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like a multi-token batch auction design. It's actually much, much more complex. Um, but the team in, that we hired um, for DutchX was, I would still say, kind of junior in a sense in terms of experience in blockchain. So something as complicated as CowSwap, uh, I think, could only be formed by a team that already had a lot more experience. Okay. And I think DutchX gave the entire team enough experience to even work on something as complicated as CowSwap.
0: I know that what we want to talk about today is more about like Gnosis Chain and some of the upcoming stuff, but I do, I want to sort of stay on CowSwap for a second because just recently we had Chris Goes on the show talking about Intense. Yeah. I was <laughs> still silly saying it because I, yeah, I think I sound like I'm saying Intense, but yeah. When I started to learn about it, the example that was highlighted for me, if you want to see an intense based system in the world, in the wild, try CowSwap, cow which I use Ooh, actually yes. quite often. So yeah. I already knew it. And I was like, oh, that's what you mean. Like you kind of put out what you want and you kind of put out how much you want to pay. And then it finds it through some much more elaborate you know, going through different tokens That's to That's exactly
2: it. what CowSwap is. So yeah, ultimately, yeah. if you trade on CowSwap, what you sign cryptographically is your intent to swap one token for another token uh, for a certain price and a certain price range. Mm. And you can also define like a time frame which you want to do this. And then this uh, order or intent is out in the wild <laughs> and uh, what you call solvers in CowSwap, uh, they can take those intents and try to match them with other intents. Um, to finally settle them on-chain. So in that sense, it's actually an intent. If you were trade on Uniswap, for example, uh, you're actually signing a concrete order, mm-hmm. uh, Ethereum order or transaction, which directly defines the path of execution on-chain. So that's very, very different. Uh, here we kind of are abstracting a way of like the concrete way to settle, mm-hmm. to just define what's the user intent. And that, of course, allows much more flexibility in terms of how this mm-hmm. intent is actually materializing in a transaction.
0: And, but do you think, like, have you been following the intent conversation then? Like, yeah, do you, how, course, do, yeah. how do they take what you've done and push it forward?
2: So this is like a very complex topic. Uh, I think it's also kind of related to the general idea of also even account abstraction or like how you, um, I would say the more complex the system becomes, uh, the better it is to ask the user for their intent instead of the concrete execution. Okay. Because there can be many factors playing into this. Mm. Uh, and if you just have the intent, then you have the most abstract form of what a user actually wants to accomplish in the system. And that's only what the user actually cares about. Totally, And it allows us to build the underlying systems to fulfill this intent. And yeah. they can become arbitrarily complex, but we don't lock the user into <laughs> like one concrete execution path. That's kind of high level how I would explain it. And that's why I think also it's a better way to execute. Very Mm -hmm. simple example of this, why related to account abstraction. One fundamental feature that account abstraction also through safe contracts (laughs) uh, allows to do is um, to abstract the intent from paying the fee for the transaction. Mm. Yeah, so one big user experience issue on blockchain is still people have to understand what's a fee for transaction, how do I price this transaction? What if there's a gas spike? I have to resubmit this transaction Mm -hmm. because my gas price was too low. You know, all of those user experience issues, they can all be now abstracted away because the user only cares about swapping a token. They don't care about the transaction fees. And account abstraction allows exactly to do this. You just have your intent. And then someone else, like a relayer, searcher, solver, you name it, many terms for this, uh, can pick up this intent, turn it into something that's actually executable, and make sure it is included and the user doesn't have to worry about it. And mm. that's why intents are so important.
0: I want to talk a little bit more about account abstraction. Yeah, I, sure. You know, I, a while ago I had Argent on the show and we did talk about sort of the smart contract-based wallet, but isn't safe already kind of account abstraction? Or yes. is there, like, <laughs> what is, why is there then a conversation about it now? Are people trying to get more people to move to these types of wallets? Or, yeah, I'm just curious your thoughts on that.
2: Very good question. So yes, the safe contract has all the features that are important for account abstraction. And yes, it exists already for many, many years. And we even built uh, first prototypes like almost three years ago or okay. four years ago, where a user could actually do an Ethereum transaction and not pay with Ether but any other yes. token. yeah, yeah. Very simple example. One feature that is enabled through account abstraction that has massive implications for user experience. The question is like, why did it came up now? Mm -hmm. Um, I think it was triggered because it was shifted more into the focus of the Ethereum roadmap itself. Vitalik brought it up, Um, the EIP 4337 was uh, formulated and got a lot more attention. And that effectively tries to solve uh, some of the problems of account abstraction. Generally, I think the reason also why it became more important is because more people realized account abstraction is needed for us to bring user experience on par with Web2, which in my view is also needed in order to get to a larger level of adoption. Mm-hmm. If you really want to onboard finally this yeah, next yeah. Million, 10 million, whatever amount of users, we have to have account abstraction in place. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can't have the yeah.
0: name account abstraction anymore.
2: No. It needs to be like, so hidden. Yes, it yeah. is. So, and uh, actually, I would say the safe is most likely to be the core infrastructure for this simply because it's the most widely known uh, smart contract. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, every WorldCoin user is using a safe contract. Mm-hmm. Can, well, different opinions on <laughs> WorldCoin, but I'm very glad with their design decision to use safe contracts. Yeah. And now we see more and more wallets um, implementing safe contracts under the hood to allow account abstraction. And yeah, no, Arjun is also a very good example. Of course, they have their own system mm-hmm. and uh, they are mostly, I think, focused these days on ZkSync and StarkNet, uh, whereas we are kind of agnostic. So safe contracts exist on every, on every EVM network at this point. Yeah, I bet. And uh, there are a lot of mobile wallets now starting to implement safe contracts because they understand It brings a lot of advantages for account recovery, for fee abstraction, and all of those things that will be necessary to onboard more users.
0: So what happens to the safe when EIP 4.337 goes through? Like does something fundamentally change for the user?
2: So to explain four three three seven, so four three three seven is actually not an Ethereum protocol change. It's okay. only something that is implemented on the application layer, if you will. Like it can also be implemented in Ethereum clients, but doesn't change. It doesn't require any hard fork or soft fork, Got right? It. Um, it's like a standard. It is a standard as there are many standards, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but um, what it allows to do is to more easily relay transactions. So um, we talked about the intents, right? And the intents have to be formed into Ethereum transactions and they have to be propagated on the network. And that's kind of what 4337 tries to solve um, by having this built into Ethereum clients which can pick up those intents to make them part of the Ethereum blockchain. Mm. Uh, That's what it is about. There are many opinions on this. So one thing is very obvious on Ethereum itself. It will not materialize because there is significant gas cost overhead attached to this. And it would make every simple ERC-20 token transfer twice as expensive. And people are already complaining about transaction fees. So I doubt it will gain any meaningful adoption on Ethereum itself. Got it. Of course, uh, talking about layer 2s, we are talking about a different environment. And there it is very viable. One thing, however... Uh, something that we see on Ethereum right now, right? Like we see centralization through searches, block mm-hmm. builders.
1: The MEV um, stuff.
2: Exactly. Uh, which is because it makes things more efficient. And of course, intents also include MEV, right?
0: Wait, what do you mean? Like the it adds more MEV? It creates Absolutely. MEV? Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: Okay. Like every intent can include MEV, right? Like if I, if I want to, if my intent is I want to swap A for B and this is a price range, then the price range gives you some opportunity for MEV Mm. and that's why it's just a hypothesis obviously right now but my assumption is any network that will eventually uh, have MEV available or I guess enough economic activity will lead to some sort of centralization of this part and then it will probably not be like the uh, similar to how we don't have a decentralized mempool right now. Uh, We also not have a decentralized mempool for intents because it kind of falls back to the same principle. It's not fundamentally different. And that's why I'm kind of not sure if 4.3.3.7 will be actually as important as people think it is today. But I cannot predict the future. I mean, I can only make assumptions. Uh, uh, We will see what will happen. (laughs) In any case, I think the safe contracts will be uh, quite important for this because they are just independent of how the mempool is. It's just a a way how users can uh, settle intents and that's it.
0: There's a lot in what you just shared. So first of all, this idea, so I'm realizing in talking to you that I have not visited Ethereum land in a while because <laughs> I yeah. mean, I've talked to maybe individual L2s or like but I I feel that the the idea that an EIP does not succeed on the main but only succeeds on the L2s. This is sort of the first time I'm I'm realizing that that's possible. That really talks about like a like a difference in I don't know if it's like communities or like builders will have different choices to make if they are building on an L2 in this right. case, right? right? And that's something, I mean, I I feel a lot of the L2s are sort of selling themselves as like one-to-one as a virtual machine, one-to-one, yeah. but there is different activity actually happening there.
2: Absolutely. So I think it's very obvious that Ethereum will not be a place for individuals in the future to operate. It will be more for institutions and layer twos wow. as like a kind of settlement layer and a, a place to rebalance between different parts of the network. Um, but it will not be you or me making a transaction. It will uh. just be too expensive.
0: And then you also talked about this like centralization of mempools on the different L2s. This, to me, is probably like a whole episode to talk about like the role of the searcher and what that means going forward. I wonder if now would be an interesting time to also introduce Gnosis Chain, though, because I know we mentioned it, right? Yeah. but I feel like, yeah, because that's what you are currently working on in, in a lot of ways. This is where the project has evolved to. I do think we did mention it on the episode with Martin uh, the last time he came right. on. But yeah, let's, let's introduce Gnosis uh, very, Chain. Very,
2: very briefly. Um, so Gnosis Chain previously was called XDAI. So many of you probably... Know it from the times when you were issuing ops. <laughs>
0: yes. Also, we did an episode on that a long time ago. Great. Yeah. Great. So, if so people want to hear that. Like, exactly. That was, Just, I think that was the first time I understood bridges, actually. Okay, great. Because that was very much a bridge. It was like another network yeah. that was bridged. And that was the terminology I think they were using. Exactly. At like, the time, basically, Gnosis
2: right? Chain is the, let's say, original sidechain to Ethereum. Okay. It uh, was the first one before Polygon, Binance Smart Chain, yeah. any of those existed.
0: And it was and called XDAI. It was
2: called XDAI. And it was
0: associated with this burner wallet phenomenon. That, That's
2: right. Burner wallet yeah. was one of the main applications, really nice to use for payments. Mm-hmm. And so it always kind of was associated to this use case. Uh, we saw it being an underappreciated ecosystem, and we wanted to help XDAI to succeed. And so eventually Gnosis and XDAI merged. It was renamed to Gnosis Chain, and we changed the technical roadmap. Uh, previously, we was using POA consensus, and mm-hmm. we changed it to... Uh, actually ethereum beacon chain consensus, so we have our own beacon chain running for gnosis chain, mm-hmm. and what makes the ethereum consensus very interesting is that it allows for a very decentralized validator set so ethereum has about i think five hundred fifty thousand validators right now gnosis chain has about one hundred thirty thousand validators, and there's literally not any other networks that come close to those numbers yeah yeah and of course this number also has to be taken with a grain of salt because it's more important how many different entities are actually running those. Mm. It could be just me running all validators. Yeah. would not be very decentralized. <laughs> so that's why we also focus on incentivizing lots of individuals, companies to actually run validators. Yeah, And yeah, we know for sure that we have about 1,500 to about 2,000 individuals and companies running validators, which is a lot for mm. a blockchain network. So there's very few networks that can Come even close to those numbers, and uh, of course, the question is always like, why do you focus on decentralization? Obviously, we all know this famous like trilemma mm-hmm. coined by Vitalik. You have to, you have scalability, you have decentralization, uh, and security, and you cannot have all of this. And uh, most of the Ethereum competitors, they focus on scalability because they saw um, mm-hmm. Ethereum being fully utilized, and they saw the opportunity to create something that's more scalable. For us, we focus still on decentralization Mm -hmm. instead of scalability, Mm -hmm. because we see a high demand for decentralized block space, right? Like only Ethereum is actually super decentralized, Bitcoin as well. (laughs) But all the other networks, uh, again, like they make these huge compromises in terms of, ah, decentralization not as important, Mm -hmm. scalability more important. And by Um, other
0: networks, do you mean L2s or do you mean the like other L1s?
2: uh, Actually, all of them. Okay. So, layer, layer two is actually very centralized. There's only one one sequencer. Usually, although there,
0: there's talk of decentralizing the sequencers. Every single one has that on the roadmap. Oh,
2: of course, of course. But then you kind of <laughs> go back to the same problem, right? And uh, so it's just like kind of having a blockchain built on a blockchain. So, of course, everyone wants to decentralize, but de facto, just looking at what is the state of networks today, like layer twos are very centralized. Mm. <laughs> And then you have Polygon, which of course has a lot more uh, validators, but it's also unclear who's actually running them, how decentralized is this actually. Then you have VC, VC chains, like Solana. where It's very obvious, very few parties can collude to actually compromise the network. Mm-hmm. So decentralization is actually a very scarce resource and only Ethereum Bitcoin really fulfill the criteria, I would say, to have mm-hmm. a really fully decentralized network. And uh, at the same time, we see Ethereum block space is in high demand, It is uh, one of the few networks where people have a lot of trust in this network. They store their net worth on the network. Uh, They are willing to operate globally. And so we saw an opportunity to create more of this decentralized block space by offering actually a highly decentralized network following one-to-one the Ethereum roadmap. So we are the only like one of the very few networks that is actually running the same stack as Ethereum, which also allows us to benefit from all the research that is done on Ethereum. Mm. So for example, uh, very soon, we'll have uh, proto-denk sharding being implemented, and that requires actually a beacon chain. So we have lots of networks that are EVM compatible, like by the smart chain Polygon, but they can never implement this EIP because they don't have a beacon chain.
0: You say you're one-to-one, you're sort of following the roadmap, but are you sometimes able to do things before the Ethereum network can do it. Like,
2: that for was example, the, did you go
0: to proof of stake first?
2: We That was our intention, to be honest. I think it's impossible to front run Ethereum. Okay. So I think we kind of jumped ahead of ourselves a little bit. And uh, to be honest, it is just incredibly difficult. And even us being very close to Ethereum, we underestimated ah. the app, the insane complexity of the underlying systems, and so I think on the on the core layer we cannot ever front run Ethereum mm. simply because uh, there are too many complexities, and maybe we can eventually activate a hard fork a week earlier, but it's also unlikely. Okay. So so far we have been running behind, I don't think this will necessarily change. However, <laughs> we can innovate on the layer above. So we mentioned four through three seven being one of those EIPs which are actually not requiring a hard fork, right? Yeah. And on this layer, I think we can experiment a lot. So we experiment mm. with designs that allow, uh, for example, encrypted mempools to allow more privacy. And those, of des- those kinds of designs we can innovate on top of Ethereum without being directly incorporated into the, into the core layer. Mm-hmm. If it proves to be successful, eventually we get enough mindshare to drive us back to Ethereum and say, like, here, look at this. This is something that makes sense. It got adoption and then eventually can be implemented in the core layer. But well, that's a very long journey. So I, I would dare to say we're going to front run Ethereum. Okay, okay. We're going to be uh, modest and follow uh, okay. and make sure that we're actually on top of things.
0: Did Gnosis, like another idea, and I don't know in which interview when I heard this, but wasn't Gnosis Chain kind of early on? also meant to be like the place for more non-economic activity. Sort of like the example that was often given was like voting on a DAO. You would do some sort of the activity on the L1, but like the voting and all of those signatures and all of that activity would happen on Gnosis Chain. Are you still thinking about it that way? It sounds like not really.
2: So one way we see um, Gnosis Chain is to be sort of an extended version of Ethereum. Mm So uh, as we are very decentralized and we have a very secure connection to Ethereum using actually ZK technology, (laughs) um, we can be used as a space for trustworthy computation that can eventually be relayed to Ethereum. So that's something we really still are very excited about. And we are also working with those teams that try to enable this, including like Axiom, for example. Mm. Um, but I those... was about
0: to say, as you said that, sort of the extension, it sounds a little bit like the coprocessor. Or the... Exactly. Although what they're doing is so specific and it sounds like Gnosis Chain is way more generalized still. Yeah,
2: Gnosis Chain is very generalized, but Axiom, I think, is a very... Great team that can enable some of those use cases. Mm. And uh, so we are working closely with them to enable them also specifically between Gnosis Chain and Ethereum. Uh, we're also talking actually to some layer twos to use Gnosis Chain as a place for data availability. Whoa. Oh my gosh. So <laughs> that's such a flip. As Ethereum, you know, it's kind of not a flip.
0: But I think of it like, isn't DA always meant to be like, well, I mean, at least the Celestia yeah. example is like, data availability is sort of the center and then you have roll-ups that come off that and all the execution well, lives on the That's Celestia roll-up. vision. Okay, okay. <laughs> Tell me yours. Wow.
2: Like, uh, I mean, Celestia, yeah, great project. Um, but of course, right now, Ethereum roll-ups are like using Ethereum for data availability. Mm-hmm. And uh, now we're talking to Layer 2s that are considering using Gnosis Chain for data availability instead.
0: But you would be using data, like in this case, yeah. are they then writing data? data to Gnosis. Yes, yeah. But isn't the reason you do it on Ethereum is you want the like amount of security that Ethereum has?
2: Well, that is the, <laughs> right? that is the pitch that Vitalik is doing. Okay. Uh, of course, it comes at a very high cost because ultimately your costs are directly proportional to the general fee cost on Ethereum. Mm. So potentially they're very high, like very costly to operate and for many use cases, I think will not be viable. And actually data availability is... Uh, in our view, it requires much less security assumptions compared to computational integrity. Okay. Right. Like you want to make sure that uh, you don't tamper transactions by settling on Ethereum and you should be able to challenge this on Ethereum. But where the data comes from mm. and that you have data available, for this you can use many different systems. Mm. It doesn't have to be Ethereum. Mm. It can be Celestia, if, once it's available. Uh, it can be Gnosis Chain. So it can be any of those systems. Hmm. And uh, important is that they're securely connected to Ethereum to be able to prove that something was available. And that's something that we are also developing, obviously, like a secure bridge that allows to communicate between Ethereum and Gnosis Chain.
0: As you're saying all this, would Eigenlayer also kind of be in that competitive sphere that you're talking about? Or is it closer to you than Celestia in a way?
2: Good question. So I, I think it's a bit closer to us, for sure. Um, but it plays in the same, yeah, in the same field.
0: Wow. I feel like I need to see a map.
2: <laughs> Me too.
0: <laughs> I mean, even when you when you talk about data availability of L2s, like if they're using Gnosis, and Gnosis, meanwhile, is using the succinct Bridge. technology right. to Ethereum, and they're using their own sort of like ZK, I mean, not really bridges, but, you know, the ZK roll-up proof. Right. It's like you see sort of the central Ethereum, you see all these chains branching off it, and then you see all these things between them. And I always thought, oh, it would just be bridges between them for tokens. But now you're talking about like, no, we're going to abstract this part of what you're doing and we're going to do it on another L2. I mean, it's wild. It's just computation. Yeah, it's totally
2: wild. I mean, for me, tokens is just like one very simple use case actually can be built around bridges. But of Mm -hmm. course bridges um like most of the bridges implement something called arbitrary message bridge it's a protocol that allows to yeah send arbitrary messages and this yeah. can be can do anything basically
0: crazy do you think okay so as you were describing this scenario too it starts to look a little oddly like cosmos or something like uh-huh. these like different things that are all connected and yeah. currently there's like one central one but do you envision this is like obviously no one can predict anything but Could you imagine that there's a future where there's these roll-ups kind of hanging off Ethereum and then they have their L3s hanging off them and then maybe the center of gravity shifts? Could that happen?
2: So it will never shift from a layer one to layer two or from a layer two to a layer three. And that's simply, that's not possible because uh, the higher you go in the layer, the less secure it becomes. You always depend on the security of the underlying layer. Okay. But However, in your case, you how,
0: are a, you're a full-on blockchain It's a exactly. token. So that, what we okay. foresee
2: is a future which kind of combines the idea of Cosmos of having multiple yeah, yeah. networks running parallel with the vision of having layer twos expanding the blocks, like the block space basically of the underlying layer one. Crazy. So effectively, we'll have multiple networks being securely connected via... ZK bridges that can prove hmm. state correctness and uh, that you're operating on the con- canonical chain. Yeah. So this will happen. And then those will have layer twos, layer threes, whatever on top of it mm-hmm. to scale like their specific applications.
0: So the other architecture that had this look a little bit would have been Polkadot with Kusama. Cause I remember when they did those Absolutely. two. I mean,
2: ultimately, like, the architectures yeah. become extremely alike. Yeah. So I think it's just. It's kind of a mix of horizontal scaling and vertical scaling yeah. um, that ultimately all of those systems drive towards too. Yeah. And yeah, I think it's great. It's like, it's, it's good to agree sometimes. <laughs> it's
0: fascinating to see it all sort of converge in that way. But you can also see like there were different building approaches. Like how did these systems come to life? Some yeah. were predefined and designed. Some were sort of like spec'd and then picked up. I put... Polkadot in the first one, I put Cosmos in the second, Three. and still figuring it out. And then Ethereum, like well, I guess Serenity, had originally also predicted something like
2: this. Yeah, there were very vague ideas of like how the future should look like, yeah, yeah. and has changed so many times. Um, I think yeah, Ethereum is kind of like yeah, we just launch something and uh, figure scalability out later on <laughs> approach. Yeah. Whereas Polkadot was more like top down. Okay, we solve scalability this way. And Cosmos was, I think, also more organic with the difference that it was always more app chain specific mm-hmm. instead of having a generic environment for any kind of application operating on the same network.
0: Although a lot of the zones that are successful have had to sort of become full blockchains yes. anyway, because those connection points weren't really there for them to start using the other networks. Like now they're getting there, but yeah, it's, it's sort of funny. It's like, all
2: converging to the same. So yeah. something that I also predict, another prediction. Ooh. <laughs> So, um, so kind of what we see is uh, Ethereum is at capacity, right? For the last years, actually. On the other hand, we have like the concept of app chains. App chains basically have one network trying to have one application mm. um, being run on this network, and that's it. And I expect actually instead of having this application sharding, we rather have user sharding. Whoa! So user sharding for me is, is a bit similar to how you play computer games, actually. You know, like we have different servers you connect to, like the European server, US server. (laughs) Even if you want to play something, you're talking
0: about like an MMO. Yes. Like if you, okay. Yeah.
2: So I'm talking about not the World you of don't, Warcraft. Not,
0: not the CD that I put into my No,
2: no, 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 no. <laughs> like you, <back> in... <laughs> you play one of those MMORPGs, right? Okay. And uh, those can only scale because they have many different servers in different regions. And it makes sense because you always play with people. Um, well, many times you play with people in proximity. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it's definitely kind of one way to, to solve this problem to have those different servers. And that's kind of how I predict also how blockchains ultimately will evolve. You have user shardings, so you have like different layer 2s, they will all have the same applications, Whoa. but you will shard the users according to how likely they transact with each other.
0: And in a way, it so it's funny because it is sort of happening, but it's happening because of like the marketing efforts of teams. Like you'll have some L2s that just worse or, or like right. other blockchains that like went into a single market, yeah. Japan or Turkey or something, and right. they happen to get a lot of users from that particular it makes sense that's how it grows like every
2: user wants to have everything right like you're not moving to a city where you have only a bakery you want you need everything ultimately to to yeah. feel like you can get around and uh that's the yeah. most the easiest to accomplish by having everything on the same network because you can have the same assumption of how costly transactions are and I also like to compare to cities you know like um depending where you live, you have different transaction costs and user sharding will also happen not according only where people live but also what kind of price they can pay for transactions. Mm. If you live in Manhattan, obviously you have to, you are willing to pay more rent yeah. <laughs> compared to I don't know living in another city in US wow. uh, <gasps> and and that kind of I like to, com- to compare blockchains to this as well. like if you you can be in the expensive shard where you can maybe do like high value transactions, Because you have a lot of money, you can pay a lot, but that's basically Ethereum. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then you have uh, like other districts of the city that can be optimism, Gnosis Chain, whatever, where people with less money want to transact or like other use cases are being developed, which just require a different environment.
0: You had mentioned the Succinct Bridge just before. Let's dive into that in a little bit more detail. We did have Uma on the show as well. It's so funny, this episode in particular is going to be like, the list of other episodes that people should listen to. Um, This is a very kind of like, you know, hub and spoke episode. But yeah, tell us a little bit about the Succinct Bridge, where where it's at, is it already live, and are you using it?
2: Yeah, so I will not dive into the details of ZK. Uma is 100 times better at this, and you as well. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um,
2: But yeah, so uh, effectively, Bridges connect to different blockchains, and they, I think, are considered the weak part right now of our ecosystem, Mm. um, because they have been hacked a couple of times in the last years. And um, yeah, if you look at the bridge that's connecting Gnosis Chain and Ethereum, um, we see it also as the most important part of the infrastructure, because it allows these use cases that kind of allow to extend Ethereum with Gnosis Chain block space. can be data availability, can be DAO voting, you name it. Mm. Uh, right now, today, uh, the bridge is still very simple. It's a multi-signature wallet <laughs> oh. uh, that is operated um, by many different independent entities that are validators on this bridge. They, they see a transaction coming in, they confirm it is actually mined on Ethereum, and then they trigger an event on Gnosis chain. Hmm. That's kind of how it works today.
0: How, how many multi-sig signers are there?
2: So we have seven. Okay. Uh, and uh, a fraction of those has to confirm in order to actually make a transaction happening. And uh, now recently, just I think last week or the week before, we upgraded this with a new validator, which is Succinct. Okay. So what effectively is happening is um, Succinct can prove that a certain uh, event happened on Ethereum by recreating the consensus of Ethereum on Gnosis Chain through a ZK snark.
0: And when you say it's, you've been added to, do you just mean like that is now a new yes, part like of multi Yes, like one
2: new, one new entity in the multi Okay. Is So we go step by step here, right? Okay, okay. We don't want to go all in into a technology that is not in that sense proven. Of course, everything has been audited, yeah, but yeah. it's a very new tech, so you have to be conservative. And a very conservative approach is just making them part of the infrastructure by being one of these validators on the bridge mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, being able to... Recreate if a transaction actually happened on Ethereum by proving the consensus of Ethereum on Gnosis chain through succinct, and then using this as a confirmation on the bridge itself.
0: What are the other multisig agents doing then? Like, are they also confirming something? Are they kind yes. of doing the same action? All of them. They
2: but- basically, but they are, of course, much less sophisticated. They are mm-hmm. just looking. Okay. <laughs> they just have an Ethereum node running. And they see our oh, transaction happens, someone deposited something. Let's wait for this to be actually confirmed, uh, I think, 20 or 30 blocks or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think we have to increase this for Succinct because Succinct can only um, recreate the consensus, I think, every 50 blocks or something. Don't quote me on the numbers. Um, but that's effectively what the other validators are doing. And uh, then if they see something was actually confirmed, they uh, yeah signal this mm-hmm. and they sign off on this transaction and then uh, you can trigger this transaction on Gnosis Chain.
0: Interesting. You're all of a sudden making me want to understand what the multi sig, the regular multi sig person or age, like, is it just a computer program running? Yeah, yeah. Like, it of sounds course. like you'd have to do yeah, a yeah, lot yeah. of these. So, things, uh, I always uh, think of it as like a multi sig person, always is, like think a about human. Multi-sig. yeah, know. Like, yeah. no, on no. the ledger. <laughs> no,
2: no, no, that would Every be terrible. Seconds. <laughs> I think then Gnosis uh, Chain would have no adoption at all. Uh, no, fortunately, we have just like computer services running. Okay. Uh, that can watch the nodes incoming transactions wait and everything is automated and uh, the reason why it's secure is because we have many parties running infrastructure independently and they're very close to us so and they are also very firm in security so we know their systems cannot easily be compromised that's why we consider it a very secure system Mm. probably much more than many of the other bridges simply because the smart contract uh, implementation of it is very straightforward uh, very secure and uh yeah that's why we, we think actually it's one of the most secure bridges today. Um uh, now
0: you're adding this the succinct and the ZK. But this component. is
2: exactly but that's only one first step. Mm. Ultimately our vision is a different vision. So ultimately we want to move away from this old multi-signature based bridge to a new bridge which we call Hashi.
0: Hashi. 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 Like Hashi is hashes he-
2: so, no, it's like the Japanese word oh. for bridge, actually. Oh, okay, cool. So, yeah, yeah. So like one of our engineers, he's uh, quite uh, fond of Japan. So, he coined this project Hashi. Nice. And, uh, yeah, the idea of Hashi is actually, it's kind of also multi-sig, if you will, <laughs> what it does. It aggregates information from different bridges mm-hmm. and allows applications And actually, a token bridge is an application of an arbitrary message bridge, which can be just built around, which basically allows to aggregate the information which is required in order to have these other applications built on top. And a very simple example, we have multiple bridges already connecting to Gnosis chain today. Okay. So we have Succinct, Omnibridge, Wormhole, and a few others are running in a test environment right now Okay. and um, if you think about blockchain information we mentioned we need to extract information in order to understand that something happened on this blockchain but ultimately the information is consolidated in one piece which is Mm -hmm. the block header and
0: all of these bridges are doing the same thing
2: Um, they don't but don't don't they
0: all have the same block header
2: no they don't no, so they work very simple. Like like our multi-signature bridge, they just have services running. Ah, there was a transaction. Great, I confirm this on the other network. That's how they operate. Okay. So they don't even look into the block header at oh, all. Oh, I see. Okay. But the block header is what ultimately everyone can still agree on. And uh, to give you an example of how we can do this, we can use a contract on Ethereum that automatically, when you trigger it, sends the Ethereum block header. Of a specific block via Wormhole to Gnosis Chain. Okay. Right? So, we basically, when we have this information on Gnosis Chain, we know it has, based on the security assumptions of Wormhole, we have this information relayed from Ethereum to Gnosis Chain. Mm -hmm. Now we can do the same using another bridge. Okay. Like Nomad, whatever, OmniBridge, Mm -hmm. Succinct, right? They all can do the same thing and they will all relay, in theory, the same information, which is the block header for a specific block. And now on Gnosis Chain, we can use Hashi to test if everyone reports the same. Yes. And, and if they all report the same, then we basically have additive security of all the different bridges. That's cool. And uh, based on this block header, we can extract the information like, ah, a token was transferred mm. and uh, allow to build all the other applications on top.
0: Hashi, though, sounds like something you could use. Could you do something between, like, I don't know, osmosis and ethereum or something if they have like multiple bridges absolutely. they could create something like this
2: absolutely so anywhere where multiple bridges are kind of connecting different ecosystems you can use this to relay the same information in the block header mm-hmm. to make sure um, we actually have trustworthy information it's very unlikely that you can compromise all of those bridges at the yeah. same time
0: <laughs> although wait do they all have to be ethereum based
2: well, they have to be able to connect to if you want or it's to relay it doesn't exactly it doesn't okay. matter that they're connected to ethereum yeah, yeah but they have to be connected to the blockchain that you want to actually transfer the block header from mm. right okay. If you want to build a bridge between ethereum nose chain has to be between those two networks, if it's I don't know cosmos and I don't know um, whatever mm. osmosis or Ethereum then has to be on Cosmos and Ethereum and mm. so on.
0: That's interesting yeah do you need do you need it on both sides?
2: Well, it, it depends on how you want to do things. So, for example, if you don't really want to uh, go back to Ethereum, as it's just about transferring information over from Ethereum to Gnosis chain, then the one-way bridge is fine. It's fine. But in most cases, I guess you would like to have like a full duplex bridge, which allows to go in both directions.
0: Is it just a, sm- is it a smart contract? What is Hashi?
2: Yes, it's just a smart contract. It's just a standard of how you can aggregate this information and uh, decide on if you actually trust this or not. It's a very simple concept, but important, because ultimately I think right now no one would trust any single bridge. Yeah. But if you can add security of the different bridge implementations, then it becomes interesting. And on the one hand, I think we kind of commoditize bridges here, which is also a bit tricky, because... Most bridges care mostly about applications, like token transfers, Hmm. token bridges. But we just now care only about the block header, which is the most fundamental piece of information, but there's not necessarily like a business associated to it. Hmm. And the idea is to build on top of this information, a token bridge. So in that sense, we commoditize it. Uh, On the other hand, I think for all of those bridges, um, no one really trusts their security assumptions. So in some way, it's also a way to gain trust again yeah, in yeah. any of the underlying systems by adding them all together.
0: What happens if you spot one of the one of them bringing the wrong header?
2: Very simple. Like the in our case, actually the bridge was halted, and we would have a governance decision of what to do. Probably would probably disable it. this one yeah. uh, temporarily at least. Yeah, yeah, but and you'd have to
0: like like you'd have to tell. I mean.
2: Of course. <laughs> I mean, the assumptions should never happen, right? Like if this yeah, yeah, happens yeah. and there's something, security something was compromised. Something happening, yeah. Yeah, either a technical flaw or just a security compromised, whatever. And uh, then it's better to just halt and see what's going on. Mm. Because otherwise, yeah, we've, we, I think people have lost enough money. <laughs> yeah.
0: Let's talk about maybe a new project or the new things that are happening. I don't know, are they deeply related to the bridge? Not really, right?
2: So in some sense, everything is related to the bridge. Okay. <laughs> because uh, we have a lot of assets which are mirrored from Ethereum. Okay. For example, stable coins like USCC USDT. It's not natively issued right now on, on Gnosis chain, but it is coming from Ethereum. So you rely on the bridge security
0: Got in it. order to use those assets. So let's talk about the new project though, yes. Gnosis Pay. Yes, yeah, okay. Gnosis Pay. Tell me about it.
2: Yeah, Gnosis Pay is a new project um, that is launching at the time this airs, probably. And uh, Gnosis Pay is obviously about payments, which we consider one of the most important but kind of underappreciated use cases uh, in blockchain. If you think about uh, the original Bitcoin white paper, Satoshi Nakamoto actually described Bitcoin as a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. Mm. That was kind of that's the title of the white paper.
0: Something you would use in the real world.
2: Used for payments. Payments was the number one use yeah. case he had in mind. It's and funny when
0: you say payments now though, we also think of on-chain payments. But here you're kind of talking about like
2: Well, yeah, generally I would say payments. just like payments, how you would do it on a daily basis. And I'm not talking about like big transfers of money, but rather every day, an everyday application. Mm. Um and I guess today even the biggest Bitcoin maximalist would not argue for Bitcoin being used for regular day to day payments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and of there course, there was uh, a
0: time in Berlin. What was it called? There's like this burger joint that would like.
2: Well, there was this uh, bar 77. No. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And he accepted Bitcoin.
2: Exactly. And he eventually, he probably didn't need to work anymore. And then he <laughs> somehow ran out of business. Yeah. I'm not sure why, but um, <laughs> anyways. So that was kind of the original idea of Bitcoin. Well, today we have maybe ideas like Lightning Network, but all of them would never ever scale to to something that would allow actual like day-to-day payments to, mm-hmm. to work. And uh, yeah, what are the reasons why this never succeeded? I think it kind of relates to um, one blog post that Vitalik also recently posted about the three transitions that need to happen in order to gain larger adoption which is related to scalability through layer twos, which is related to uh, user experience through account abstraction, and which is related to privacy, right? Mm -hmm. Right now, every transaction is publicly visible and that's just not what you would like to have for your everyday payments. Mm -hmm. So I think we made a lot of progress on all of those topics actually in the last couple of years. And now we are, in my view, at an inflection point where um, technology is ready to actually enable those use cases, finally.
0: Cool. So
2: we are able to develop Gnosis Pay as a layer two with account abstraction enabled through safe contracts on Gnosis Chain.
0: And what is it though? What is Gnosis Pay?
2: What is Gnosis Pay? So Gnosis Pay is the first decentralized payment network. So we are building a layer two that is optimized for the use case of payments.
0: And by payments you mean like buying stuff in stores?
2: I mean really everyday payments like what you are using Visa, Mastercard, and uh, whatever. So for. how do you
0: how would you do it though? Do you have your phone or do you have a card?
2: So as the as the kind of first product that is being launched on Nosis Pay, uh, we are launching a card. Okay. Yeah. So it's like a debit card um, that you can also use with Apple Pay and and whatsoever, <laughs> uh, and it allows you to use funds that you are storing on Nosis Pay, So you have your funds in a non-custodial environment, mm-hmm. but whenever you pay, you grant a permission to the payment processor to withdraw from your non-custodial account. And, uh, yeah, having your funds always in your own account instead of uh, having Binance or your bank or whatever in between I'll having be custody up. of your funds.
0: Because, like, there have been credit cards out there, that Yes, right. Crypto credit cards exist. Yeah. But usually behind the scenes, what's actually happening on those cards?
2: Yeah, it's very simple. I mean, Binance card, crypto.com, all of those cards, they're yeah, just yeah. another interface uh, to Binance.com or crypto.com. So a user has to transfer their funds to Binance.
0: A centralized and, uh, space. A
2: centralized exchange. And then you can directly pay from this balance. Mm-hmm. And Binance makes 5% of the spread. Mm-hmm. Doesn't like they say that it doesn't have any fee, but effectively when you start spending, they convert your crypto on the fly at a five percent spread. So okay. you're actually paying a lot of money. Okay, okay. So it's not even great from that perspective. Uh, at the same time, it's still very successful. So there's definitely high demand for users to not offboard to to their banks mm. in order to start spending on a daily basis. And now what we do is we move this from the centralized exchange to a decentralized network. Uh, where the user can have the same mm-hmm. convenience, because I think that's very important. Like, users don't want to change their behavior. You still want to use your phone or your card to pay yeah, everywhere. Yeah. And you want to be able to pay everywhere. Like uh, Visa, MasterCard, I accepted at 80 million merchants. So it's the most distributed payment network. And I think in order for us to actually build a decentralized payment network, we have to build a bridge to the old payment network, mm-hmm. Visa, MasterCard. Uh, they're here for a reason, and uh, we have to connect to them in order to gain adoption.
0: And so that's the question. When you say you release a card, like it, what kind of credit card is it? Is it just one of the more classic cards? Like it is, is it Visa?
2: It is. It has to be a Visa card because okay. otherwise you could not use the Visa uh, network, and then you could not be accepted at 80 million merchants.
0: So they've done that legwork on the ground to get
2: right, in the right, door. right. So they yeah. we still have to at this point we have to work with Visa mm-hmm. uh, in order to gain adoption and make sure our users have a great experience uh, at the same time we settled everything also on a decentralized network. Yeah. So you have your funds on decentralized network, and uh, at the same time, you can use all those funds anywhere in Visa. Mm -hmm. And the perspective obviously is to grow this network to eventually allow also peer-to-peer transfers between customers and merchants, because that's the reason why it's so interesting. If you look at, we're always talking about removing the middleman, right? And we are always thinking only about Visa, Mm being the middleman, but if you look under the hood, then between the merchant and the customer, there's not only now the acquirer, the bank that acquired the merchant Mm -hmm. and the issuer, the bank that's issuing the card for the customer, but now there's also a processor, the aggregators, now there's Apple Pay in between. Yeah, yeah. So there it's might be insane. even
0: the POS, like the uh, what is it, course. point of sale, the device. Of course, the point taking- of sale. Yeah, yeah. Like
2: it's insane. Like the amount of middlemen yeah, in a yeah. regular payment transaction is completely Wild. insane. Mm-hmm. It's like in every transfer that you do, it's probably likely that about ten middlemen are making a share of the profit. Mm. It's insane. And that's why it's also so insanely expensive to do those transactions. And um, we see the potential that over time we can start removing some of those <laughs> and replacing them with actual decentralized technology. Because ultimately, there should not be anything needed between the merchant and customer being in the same shop doing a simple peer to peer transfer. Mm. What ultimately is obviously enabled through blockchain already.
0: But in the past, what you've needed is each one of like the merchant and the buyer to have on their phones or in their space some sort of like equal wallet with the right tokens that they could transfer and then they have to wait right. and like make sure that they, you know, hopefully they're online and da-da-da. But here you're talking about just using a card. Yeah could, they, you, yeah. could you imagine like what's what's the next step then? Like you sort of mentioned that you would even get rid of more of the middlemen. Would you create then your own Credit card and try to sell, like get that into the hands of people.
2: Well, (laughs) I cannot talk about this. Um, No, just giving me
0: a funny face there. Maybe uh, just kidding. So
2: so, there's of course, let's say the the short-term plans, mid-term plans, long-term plans. Short-term and mid-term is driving adoption, and uh, yeah, we will have to rely uh, on the existing infrastructure Mm -hmm. in order to gain a lot of adoption. And I like to bring the example of Skype. So I think I was also one of the first Skype users and I was really enjoying to do, um, IP, voice over IP calls with everyone else oh, yeah. while everyone else was still using landline. Eventually Skype built Skype in and Skype out, right? It allowed me for my voice over IP account to call a regular landline yeah, yeah. and landlines to call into my voice over IP account. And today every call on this planet goes over voice over IP. Yeah. And I think we have to get to a similar level with financial transactions right now, everything happening in the old world, a lot of gatekeepers uh, and a lot of middlemen making money. And uh, we have been building in crypto over the last 10 years technology that would enable something else. But somehow we forgot to build this Skype in Skype out experience, which allows to actually seamlessly connect between those two and that actually allow transition. transition. Yeah. And that's exactly what we are building with NOSIS Pay. So building this bridge that connects the old world and the new world and allows people to seamlessly interact. So eventually we can bring more people over. And of course, the more people on our side, the more likely everyone else is going to join. I want, in the end, Revolut to operate on North's Pay. Mm. I want these neo banks to operate on Noses Pay, take advantage of the opportunities that we have been building in blockchain over the last decade. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we need to make the first step, and that's exactly what this card is about.
0: I want to hear a little bit under the hood what's happening though. So, like, yes. what I picture is that you have your account on. So, when you, you also, is Gnosis Pay a separate L2 or is it on Gnosis Chain?
2: Uh, so, we're going to launch on Gnosis Chain, but this will be its separate layer two because Gnosis Chain's layer one has the same constraints wow. as Ethereum. Yeah,
0: yeah, okay. So, we have
2: to operate in a different environment to really allow. Large-scale adoption.
0: So, what if you have something on Ethereum, you'd move to Gnosis, and then move to the L2 on on Gnosis chain. Right, but okay, of course, okay. this
2: can be made really seamless. Uh, I don't expect any user to do all these hops manually, and of course, there will be also liquidity directly injected into the L2, so okay. it will be very, very straightforward to use.
0: Okay, but so, but on that, you'd have an yes. account, correct? And then you also create an account for the card. Like, because how do you go into the real world? How do you connect those things?
2: Right. So this is where our bridge comes into play. So we build a bridge that connects to Visa. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it connects to your on-chain account.
0: Okay. What kind and of bridge?
2: It especially, it's like we ha- we implement the RP that is imple- like is offered by different payment processes mm-hmm. that allows us to operate in different parts of this planet mm. to settle any kind of transaction. Okay. The crypto part is implemented through safe accounts. Mm-hmm. Uh, every user can give these different processors uh, an allowance to withdraw from their account a certain amount per day. So okay. This can be cryptographically uh, insured easily through a smart contract. Okay. And now if you're going to pay, what effectively happens, uh, if a user starts paying at the POS, we get the information via the processor mm-hmm. that a visa transaction has happened the user has authorized this, and we can deduct this amount from the user.
0: So do you have a like a Gnosis Pay on the L2, another account that's sort of right.
2: like... Yeah, yeah, of course. You have like you have basically yeah. a safe... So there's
0: app. like two Gnosis Pay accounts on this L2. One is yours. One is the Gnosis...
2: It can be one, one actually. It's just one account, and we can uh, just withdraw from this account because it's a safe contract. No, but I, what I mean yeah, is yeah.
0: one is the user. Right. And one is the...
2: The processor. The processor. Yeah, that's right.
0: On... Yes on the actual network. And then that processor account is connected. It's the one that's sending the signals directly to this. Correct. Um, Implements
2: the RP yeah. exactly, yeah. Okay,
0: and it and I guess it's connected to a specific card.
2: Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So this mapping is done via our bridge. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think what is, just to give a good example of how we can innovate and remove middlemen in this transaction, you probably have never heard of 3DS. So basically when you do large online transfers, Sometimes you're prompted to do like a second factor authentication. Okay. And now instead of you logging into your bank account and eventually proving this, we can actually go straight and ask you to confirm uh, with a private key.
0: Okay. Do you have to KYC? Actually, that's the next question. So if you want
2: to use Visa, you always have to KYC. Okay. Um, But we don't see KYC as an evil process. Actually, we, we also try to innovate on this part. So there are two companies uh, I want to mention. One is Fractal. We are using for KYC and they, they are building a new system called IDOS, uh, which allows users to own their data mm. and easily share it with other entities if they want to. So it's kind of like a distributed KYC platform where I can uh, one time pro- like get KYC information for Gnosis Pay, but then I can also use this and passport it to other services I want to use on this network.
0: Mm. They don't use ZK though, do they?
2: Uh, not yet, um, but it's compatible with it. And there's another interesting project I want to mention called OutID, ID uh, or Out Sorry, oh, yeah, yeah, you probably know those I think guys. Heard of them? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they basically they use the information if on the passport to create a zk proof um, that uh, Republic of Germany has uh, confirmed this kind of information, mm-hmm. and uh, it fulfills certain criteria like certain age or whatever. Without revealing this uh, in particular to to the entity requesting this information, but
0: does Visa accept any of this yet? Probably. Oh
2: not. well, the good thing is like um, we don't talk directly to Visa. Actually, we are talking to the issuer and processor, and we negotiate with them. Visa is actually ex- insanely smart. Like everything that Visa does is outsourcing to other parties. Oh wow. So Visa is more like the brand (laughs) saying like this is uh, how like you can operate on this network.
0: It's a standard body or something. It's like a
2: standard basically, but uh, many of the other things are kind of outsourced to other parties. And so it's us negotiating with them and Mm. educating them. But of course, it's much easier than trying to change the overall like standard. And I think they're very receptive um, to innovate on this as well. Um, And of course, for us, it's very important to have a great reputation especially on this field, because crypto didn't make the best headlines Mm, (laughs) in the recent past. Compliance is really important to us. And that's why we make sure that uh, every fund or all funds that are on the layer two have to go through a KYT process, Um, meaning it stands for know your transaction, by the way. Ah. Yeah, I wondered if (laughs) you just said it. Okay, I thought it it was good. (laughs) It is, yeah. KYC is know your customer. KYT is know your transaction. So we know the origin of the funds and we know... It can be used in fiat as well and everyone operating on the layer two can accept those funds and uh, doesn't have to worry about that they could not offboard.
0: by the time this airs can anyone sign up for this how do you do it
2: yes i hope so <laughs> <laughs> so you will be able or you you are able <laughs> to to buy those cards now uh, so you can go to nosispay.com and yeah you can go through a simple mm. uh, process to purchase one of those cards and uh, then hopefully Yeah, The goal is that in about one to two months actually the cards are shipped and made available to everyone and then you can start uh, using them everywhere.
0: Will this also spin out, do you think? Or is it spun out? Yes, it will
2: definitely be also a spin off. Okay. Um, Simply because it's uh, potentially at least a a very big project Mm. uh, that I think is better to be executed uh, in a separate environment as well.
0: What was the hardest part of making this happen?
2: It's not technology.
0: Yeah, That's what I was going to say. No, like it's
2: insane. Yeah. The, even the short history, I mean, at some point there might be another session just on the origins of this, because they're very interesting and they tell you a lot about the payment industry actually, but no, the hard part is, uh, making people work together (laughs) and making sure, um, that industry like payments where we talked about middlemen, (laughs) where we make everyone happy. Uh, that is not easy because ultimately we obviously depend on this old infrastructure mm-hmm. and we have to make sure uh, everyone is aligned for us to to scale and actually make it a widely accepted and successful product. Mm. And that involves a lot of politics behind the scenes. So the and technical I'm... part is we have solved this technical part yeah, already yeah. for a couple of years now. But now I also realize like, why did payments not happen before? Because of this. Why is real world integration so hard is because you work with humans.
0: <laughs> and I do wonder, like, the middlemen that you're cutting out probably don't like that you're doing that. And like, what do they do so the, in today's the, the, world? Do they right. Just, do so we are not to- cutting
2: them out. That's the simple answer. Right now, we are generating more revenue for them. So mm-hmm. they appreciate it. And of course, in the long term future, it's clear that uh, there will be alternative payment schemes. So Mm -hmm. Visa is the number one payment scheme globally, MasterCard, the second biggest, and there are many others, actually, you would be surprised, like how many Hmm. alternative payment schemes there exist. Um, Ultimately, we also would like to establish new ways for people to actually do those payments. And I think there's a lot of potential and uh, blockchain is already, by definition, uh, kind of the ledger that is needed in order to do those payments, just have it more, make it more accessible and make sure It's actually distributed everywhere. Sounds good. Cool.
0: Stefan, thanks for coming on the show and sharing with us sort of a catch up on Gnosis, all of the different pieces, some of the spin outs and all of this new work you're doing on Gnosis Pay.
2: Thanks for having me, Anna. What's a pleasure.
0: Cool. I want to say thank you to the podcast team, Rachel, Henrik and Tanya and to our listeners. Thanks for listening.